Welcome to the party, pal. The Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find links to everything related to the show, the links to the podcast, which is available, well, wherever you find podcasts, including my favorite, which is Spotify, uh, and of course, links to our social media sites where we simulcast the radio show each and every morning. On Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, you'll find the audio-only live stream and more. And we're also, of course, broadcasting live around the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning and welcome to the program, The Michael Duke Show. It is the Thursday edition of the show. And we have got, uh, well, we've got uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today, and we're excited to uh, spin things up with you and uh, and chit chat uh, on the on the old radio program today. Uh, what's on the agenda? Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, we're going to hit some headlines, and we're going to continue our discussion from yesterday, where we were starting to talk about some of the various places around the country where. Um, uh, where they have been really, really pushing this idea that somehow natural gas is going to kill us all. Uh, natural gas and other things, um, somehow they're going to make us, uh, you know, make us sick. It's not contributing to climate change. What we really need to do is just go 100% all renewable energies. Uh, and nothing else because that is what their agenda is. Now, we talked a bit about that yesterday and how, in my mind anyway, a lot of that wasn't feasible because of the fact that many of these renewables are not, well, they're not workable here in the state of Alaska uh, on an ongoing basis. But it turns out that that may be, that there may be a deeper agenda here. Um, during the program yesterday, I received a email, uh, a message from one of my listeners and it pointed me in a direction that took a bit of a darker turn that it turns out that many of the organizations that are pushing this agenda, um, have, are pushing this, this change, have a deeper agenda and that they're is a lot of dark money stuff, uh, that might be flowing around with these ideas. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And then we're, in hour two, going to talk about the one thing that uh, many of these organizations and many of these discussions are not including, and that is the discussion of nuclear energy. And in fact, micro-nuclear energy specifically, as we are going to be uh, talking with uh, Richard McPherson, who is the CEO of Idaho Energy, which is a subsidiary of Micronuclear LLC. He is a former 
U.S. representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And uh, we're going to talk about the focus on, um, you know, why nuclear energy is uh, sustainable in this idea of, uh, you know, in this huge push for the renewables, wind, solar, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's it should be an interesting discussion. Uh, Alaska has often been a test bed or a hotbed for discussions on this kind of stuff due to the fact uh, of our geographic challenges, you know, the broad, broad size and scope of the state, the lack of infrastructure to transmit electricity and everything else. We've been talking about uh, different energy solutions in this state for many years, including um, a discussion here, I don't know, what was it, 15 years ago, maybe, on uh, uh, other nuclear um, options, including, uh, you know, the nuclear battery, the Toshiba nuclear battery that they were talking about uh, bringing into the state and some other things. Um, and so we're going to have some discussions uh, with Richard uh, McPherson on that uh, here in hour two and should be a should be an interesting discussion. Uh, and and hopefully we'll come away a little bit uh, better informed on the whole situation. So that's kind of the lineup for what we have going on today. And we're going to uh, have some, we're going to have some uh, chit chat about that. Uh, but let's dive into it here, uh, I guess, first and start talking about, oh, what was that? Uh, start talking about some of the news and headlines that's busting out around the state and see, um, see what, see what hits and, and trips for us, shall we? That should be an interesting, uh, interesting take. Um, I love the, <laughs> I don't love it. That was sarcasm. Let me just, okay. Let me highlight that by saying first, when I say I love, I mean, sarcastically, I love, uh, the way that, um, the, the politics of any given situation cease to be exacerbated all the time. Uh, specifically in this moment, I'm talking about the contentiousness that we're seeing continually in the city of Anchorage, the municipality of Anchorage. Uh, for those of you who don't live in Anchorage, and I know that's probably the vast majority of the rest of the state, um, it's like watching, uh, it's like a train wreck that you just can't look away from, right? We've got a very progressive left-leaning assembly in, uh, in Anchorage, and we've got an administration that is very much on the opposite side of the political spectrum in a conservative, uh, I mean, supposedly smaller government kind of uh, feel. And, um, and, and it has just been an absolute tug-of-war poo parade going on between the municipality's uh, uh, legislative branch and the administrative branch. And, you know, while there have been some talks that that might be getting better, and there's been some... Uh, commentary here in the last few weeks that maybe that's, you know, they're kumbaya a little bit and coming together a little bit. Um, this, <laughs> this latest article from uh, KTUU Alaska's news source is proving that that may not necessarily be the, the, the case in point. And I'll be honest with you, the administration in uh, the administration in the Muni is not doing themselves any favors with all these high-profile resignations that we've seen over the last uh, several months, including uh, including uh, Amy Domboski leaving 
under a cloud and then coming back and slapping down a lawsuit about retaliatory behavior and uh, punishment of whistleblowers and all this other kind of stuff. But it's it's entertaining. I mean, I don't live in Anchorage, so I guess I can say break out the popcorn and watch what happens. But it should also be a cautionary tale for us because, as we know, being the largest city and municipality in the state of Alaska, you know, as goes Anchorage, so could go the rest of our local communities. We've we've seen it. It's monkey see, monkey do, right? It just that's just the way it is. Anyway, it's being reported in uh, in KTUU that the uh, the shortfall that the city is facing in many different or what they're calling um, vital service workers is. The blame for that apparently lies squarely on the mayor's office, uh, at least according to the assembly. The Anchorage assembly members say the problem lies with the city administration and due to what they call a toxic environment at City Hall, few people want to work for the city of Anchorage. Now, the article goes on to quote uh, uh, assembly member Cameron Perez Viridia. Um, saying that he's concerned about the number of vacancies in the police, fire, and health departments, saying that it's the mayor's fault and that they're creating an environment where people don't want to work. It's a toxic workplace. I love that toxic workplace. Toxic workplace um, and and everything else. Uh, They go on to talk about how, uh, as of April, the Anchorage Police Department was down 77 officers and support staff. That's 14% of the total budget staff. Uh, They said the shortage has been taking its toll on other officers, et cetera, et cetera. The Anchorage Police Department's reported that it has approximately 400 uh, 400, uh, uh, active duty police officers. So, I mean, I haven't done the math on it, but it just seems like uh, that that 19 percent is – you know, probably right up there with the average. The Anchorage Fire Department is missing about 11% of its full staff. Only 19 positions are unfilled, but they've got another 26 employees who are out on family or medical leave. Uh, And then finally, the Anchorage Health Department, uh, which is, again, the three service, service, vital service workers uh, that they're talking about. The Anchorage Health Department is, uh, is down... Um, about uh, uh, 34 position. It has the most vacancies of uh, this year. 34% of its budgeted staff are now open. Uh, Perez Viridia, uh, the assembly member, said, what we're learning is, is that people are leaving en masse. They're complaining about a toxic environment, and that's not the way a city should be run. The mayor points out, uh, now, granted, I'm, I'm not taking sides on this because, again, I've, when you... <laughs> When you see people leaving from various positions, especially in the higher levels of the administration and then coming back and saying, um, you know, that they were kind of run out of town on a rail, so to speak. um, I just I don't even know which way to you know, I don't even know which side to fall on. So I'm just watching this from the background going, "Ooh, baby, this is entertaining. But the mayor did make an interesting point. Uh, The uh, mayor's office sent a response to KTUU and a request for comment on this and said, like all large employers, the municipality is facing challenges in today's workforce environment. Anchorage is in the middle of a perfect storm. 
Our city has been losing working-age adults for roughly a decade. Private sector wages far outpace what the city can offer. And a hot job market in the lower 48 make it challenging to recruit and retain the best employees. The municipality competes for talent uh, with both private sector and other large public sector employers. Um, And we know that's the case. We know that there is a labor shortage, even though we have a across. This is the conundrum. We have a labor shortage across the country. We also know that we have a high unemployment rate across the country. Now, we've had discussions on what's going on in a post-COVID world that some people have changed their priorities, that they may not be as interested in punching the clock as they are in just going out and living life, uh, being willing to live on less or have a reduced lifestyle simply because it offers them freedom in various areas that they may not have had before. I mean, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of changes going on out there. So what I think we're getting here, uh, if we want to split the baby, so to speak, and come back to, you know, Uh, who's right and who's wrong, I think that they're both right and wrong. I think that you're looking at a trend that's happening across the country. This is not strictly an Anchorage problem. This is not strictly an Alaska problem. It's not strictly a public service problem. It's both in the public and the private sector. You're seeing this kind of labor shortage conjoined with the weird baby of the high unemployment. People are just not as interested in working in jobs that either they don't find fulfilling or overly stressful or whatever. And uh, I think that this is just – but what this comes back to then is a whole big case of he said, she said, right? Oh, well, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Oh, no, it's your fault. Oh, it's your fault. But it definitely makes for some entertaining discussions if, uh, if nothing else. But uh, the finger pointing is really not going to do much for us in the long run. Uh, what we need to do is find out what's important, uh, what we can do to help expedite it. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm quite honestly, I think there's just we have not recognized yet as a nation or as a country, uh, as a as an employer, that there's been a fundamental shift in the mentality of workers since 2020. That there were many workers who in 2019 would have been more than happy to take a high stress, you know, median paying job with a municipality or a government entity, knowing that there was going to be long term stability and everything else. But that post 2020, post COVID outbreak and the fear and the sky is falling and all that kind of stuff, many of those people have reassessed their priorities and decided that um, that's just not what they want to do. Uh, and I think until we really acknowledge that, I mean, you know, we we taking into account things like the Great Resignation and many of these other things that took place since 2020, um, there's probably going to be a lot of finger pointing in many areas around the country as to why these things are not working. But we've got to take into account, I think, the fact the workers themselves have fundamentally changed. Those people who are in the labor force have fundamentally uh, changed. Now, there are some things that you could do to help fix that, including reducing the welfare safety net and uh, you know higher benefits and unemployment things, you know, uh, taking away monies for not working, that kind of stuff, while still leaving a safety net in place for those who truly need it. I mean, there's some balancing there, but this is uh, this makes for a very interesting discussion. Let's just uh, let's just put that out there. Um, yeah. 
let's let's just put that out there right now. All right. Um, we got more coming up. We're going to continue in just a moment. Got some more headlines and more. We're going to touch uh, on that uh, gas and energy debate that we started yesterday and take a look at some of the dark money that are in the back of that. We're going to continue the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, Free Thinking Radio. Back with more right after this. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break right now. Uh, ready to go. Let me go back and hit the uh, hit the chat room here to see what you guys have been talking about this morning. Uh, coming up in hour two, we're going to be talking with Richard McPherson, who I see is already in the green room, getting a little bit of an earful here as we kick uh, cook things off here and uh, um, and discuss things. But let me um, – Zora on Facebook says, we are looking for the nuclear vessels. Um, yeah, that's exactly what we're looking for. Uh, good morning, good morning. Dark money, dark money surprise. Uh, Anthony says, uh, many nuclear energy would single-handedly reduce the cost of living in utilities to crazy low numbers, assuming it was implemented properly. Yeah, exactly. Um, good morning. Um, um, and Harold is in here with his usual joyful self. Governor Milktoast, rubbing elbows the global elites, yada, yada, yada. Um... Uh, okay. Sandy talking about, about Anchorage. Anchorage's toxic environment set squarely on the assembly shoulders, says Terry. Uh, I mean, I mean, it takes two to tango, Terry. So I, while I would agree with part of that, you know, when you get a lot of smoke and uh, there's probably a little fire in there as well. Uh, and Amy Domboski is not a progressive flower i mean she has been a die-hard conservative voice in the community for years so after she leaves and files a complaint and a lawsuit um there might be a little something to that I, i'm not saying that mayor bronson's administration is pure as the driven snow on this thing like i said i'm not going to take sides in that because i think that there's a lot more to it uh anthony says but here's the conundrum with micro nuclear energy it would require massive government oversight of the people so the question is would the people be willing to give up some of their rights to privacy for it right now we can't get folks to maintain their furnaces regularly and they blow soot out the roof all over the neighbor's yard this becomes a multitude more interesting if your mini reactor is out of spec and has irradiated the street for 90 years I don't know, Anthony. I, I mean, especially when you're talking about things like nuclear batteries and micro reactors and some other things, uh, I think they probably have a lot of that covered. By the way, I don't think they'd be having micro reactors in everybody's house. I still think it would be centralized. But I don't know enough about this to be – we'll see what uh, Richard McPherson has to say about that. Um, 
job market is a dumpster fire. People don't want to work and employers don't want to pay competitive wages, says Chris. I, uh, you know, uh, I think that there are competitive wages being paid out there now. I think that there's just been a fundamental shift in the ideology. I mean, they're they're paying better wages than they were in 2019 at this point. They've had to. They've had to raise their wages just to be able to attract the workers that they have right now. I think it has more to do with the change in mindset than anything else. Um, um, let's see. Um, when I went off, when I went off credit, it didn't take long for me to get used to living with less energy. And I ended up actually enjoying that lifestyle, but it should be a choice indeed. Um, okay. And yada, yada, yada. Donna says, take away the welfare and unemployment, uh, unemployment benefits for able adults. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, Again, that was part of the problem coming out of 2020 into 2021 with the extended benefits is that it disincentivized a lot of people to rejoin the workforce uh, in a timely fashion. Now, that seems to have mostly gone away, and I think we're back mostly to the pre-pandemic levels of uh, safety net and uh, benefits for folks. We'll see. Okay. Um um, switching, I'm switching, I'm sc- scrolling through here, scrolling through. Um, a Tesla battery could run your entire house, no problem. That's what I'm hoping to upgrade to one day. Yeah, but remember, the test, something has to put the energy into that Tesla battery. And that's the question. Tesla battery just doesn't create energy out of nothing. There's there's more to it. So that's the thing we always forget in this renewable. There's there's always something to use to create the renewable or at least a way to capture it. All right, we got to go. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We continue our headlines right now. Here we go. All right, welcome back to the uh, program. Still going over some headlines here this morning as we talk about some of the things that are going on in the state. We're going to get to uh, a uh, continuation of our discussion yesterday on this push across the country, which seems to be an attack on cleaner energy like natural gas and things like that. Uh, but it might have some darker roots, and we're going to talk about that as we go through here with the final segment. Some good news here, though, in the state of Alaska. Yesterday, it was announced that ConocoPhillips has decided that they're going to develop a new field, the Nuna Field, a project which they say is going to add up to about 20,000 barrels a day in production. Uh, They acquired the relatively small field in 2019 from Calus Energy. Um, they, uh, Callus is still here in the state of Alaska. They own the potentially giant but offshore oil prospect in Smith Bay. Conoco announced that um, they are going to move forward with it in spite of the fact that Senate Bill 114 has been introduced this year and could raise more taxes on oil producers. Um, they, uh, 
I mean, I guess they were, they're still making money, apparently not too worried about it. Conoco is still the state's top oil producer. They account for about $175,000, excuse me, 175,000 barrels of crude a day into the pipeline, uh, 175 of the 500,000. So it's a big chunk. Um, at Nuna, uh, Conoco is, there's already existing infrastructure at the Kapark River unit, um, and Callis had already built the gravel road and drilling pads for the project. Drilling is supposed to start late next year. Uh, they And the oil production soon after, they said they'll have nearly 30 development wells in the pipeline, on the plan, to get it all done. Um, there's a reason why uh, Conoco is still sticking around and doing things. Compared to other geographic regions where it operates, ConocoPhillips earns more in Alaska for every barrel of oil um, uh, compared to any place else. Uh, to, uh, they earn more for each and every barrel. They had previously said that the adjusted net earnings are higher in Alaska primarily because its production in the state is almost entirely oil production, whereas in other areas they have to do natural gas or natural gas liquids. Conoco earned $2.4 billion in Alaska last year and spent about $1.1 billion on capital projects, uh, and they accounted for about $3 billion in taxes and royalties, including $2.3 billion to the state and $711 million to the federal government. Um, and as we've discussed before, there's still, uh, I think there's still some money left on the table there. Now, I don't think it's the $1.2 billion that, uh, that Wilikowski's talking about, but I think that there's a significant chunk there, uh, that we could, uh, you know, for, for our diminishing resource, our collectively owned diminishing resource, we should be getting the, ma- I mean, the constitution of the state, in fact, demands that we get the maximum benefit. Uh, for resources in the state of Alaska. Um, but I, I think Wilikowski is, um, uh, I, I think his $1.2 billion, I think I saw $1.3 too, uh, $1.3 billion. But I think anything approaching a billion dollars is probably a little high. Uh, but four or $500 million left on the table? Sure. I think that that's uh, probably doable. But it's good news. Good news that there will be more uh, oil flowing in the pipe. And probably uh, that means uh, some additional jobs and and uh, uh, and everything else for in-state push. Uh, Conoco said that the company supports about a thousand direct jobs and eighty-nine hundred contractor jobs in Alaska. So big chunk. And anytime we can find more oil or develop more oil, it is a it is a good thing. It is a good thing. Um, In discussions on the electoral reform, and I know that that's been pushed here uh, in the state, and we've been talking about it. Mike Showers had a bill in for a couple of years trying to clean up voter rolls and doing some of the other things. And there's been pushes across the state and across the country to have voter reform, especially in light of uh, how messy here in the state of Alaska, specifically how messy our voter rolls are. One of the pushes has been to uh, leave a uh, to leave an organization called ERIC, which is the Electronic Registration Information Center. It's a nonprofit. Now, there's been a lot of questions about what the actual mission of this nonprofit is, who funds it. Is it a front for more progressive ideals? Is it 
benign as some have said it is or not. Uh, there have been eight states that have withdrawn from their membership of ERIC. Um, and, uh, and there was some discussion earlier this year from the new director of the Division of Elections, Carol Beecher, who took over after Gail Fanumiai left, uh, as to whether or not the, uh, that Alaska would withdraw from uh, ERIC. Um, which, you know, previously would have been, I think, kind of unthinkable. On Wednesday, uh, Tiffany Montemayor, uh, the public relations manager for the Division of Elections, said the state is going to stay a member, according to the Alaska Beacon. Uh, She said, Eric is one tool of many that the DOE uses to maintain the voter rolls, and it is particularly helpful in detecting if someone has also registered to vote in another participating state until another tool is available that can provide the same or enhanced services. The division will continue to participate in ERIC. Um, it's, uh, it costs money to be part of it, and there's been some criticisms from uh, other members of the uh, legislature that it is not necessarily doing us any favors. This will be something that we will talk about with State Senator Mike Schauer the next time he's on. It's going to be probably another couple weeks before State Senator Schauer's back on uh, because I know this is one of the hot-button issues that he was uh, worried about, uh, that Eric was not – was it was not as rosy as the picture was painted uh, in his mind, uh, and he was supportive of basically withdrawing from the Eric um, program but as of right now, uh, the uh, Division of Elections has said they are going to remain on that tool for the foreseeable future. If you're planning on going and doing some bird hunting uh, this year, um, you may want to pay. You may want to be a little careful. I'm not saying you have to go out in hazmat suits, but the uh, Division of Fish and Game and others have said this is a uh, this is a this is going to be a tough year. Migrating birds have returned to Alaska, and it turns out that there's a highly pathogenic avian flu that has continued to sweep through the global populations of birds since 2020. Um, and it says it only poses a minute risk to people. Uh, so far, there's only been a handful of cases globally, but it has been making the jump from birds to other mammals, including. Uh, foxes, coyotes, skunks, and bears, according to the latest tally here in the United States, um, along with the 58 million domestic chickens and other poultry lost to the virus, nearly 7,000 wild birds have died. And uh, they're very concerned about that. Uh, I mean, it's common for wild birds to carry numerous influenza viruses, but usually they're low pathogenic, meaning they're not contagious. The highly pathogenic viruses um, are out there in the wild right now, and uh, it seems to be affecting certain parts of the vulnerable populations, like California. They had a bunch; they had a handful of condors killed by the virus here recently, uh, the last couple months over the spring. And since that's already an endangered population with le- less than 600 uh, remaining, that was uh, very alarming. In Alaska, the birds most commonly found to be victims of influenza, this kind of highly volatile avian influenza, influenza, uh, would be waterfowl, including mallards, ravens, 
northern pintails, glaucous gulls, bald eagles, American green-winged teals, uh, Canada geese, widgeons, and uh, various types of gulls. The Alaska Department of Environmental Conver uh, Conservations uh, got a running tally of confirmed alien avian influenza infections. Um, but they're just saying if you're recommended, if you're going out to hunt birds this year, uh, even though the virus is rarely transmitted to people, they recommend protective gear, cleaning the knives and surfaces that come in contact with the birds, and taking measures including cooking all meat and eggs to an internal temperature of 165 degree Fahrenheit. I mean, if you weren't worried enough about all the other stuff that's going on, the avian influenza has returned to the the avian the alien influ the aliens have returned to the. All right, uh, we're coming up on the break, and we've got one more segment before we jump into our big guest here coming up in hour two. Uh, I again am going to revisit some of our discussions yesterday. Uh, about the elimination or the war against uh, natural gas appliances and why it's a little bit more insidious than you may think based on more discussions and research that I played out yesterday. So, should be an interesting discussion. And then our guest, Richard McPherson from Micronuclear, is going to be joining us in hour two. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Maybe that's the answer for our energy woes. We should just run everything on 100% pure beard power. That would be, that's clean, affordable energy. Wash it once a day, trim it down. 100% beard power. That's what it's all about. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm scrolling through here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Um, born conservatives that Bronson was not the guy they thought they was, says Chris, uh, over on Twitch. Okay. Um, off grid. I'm making the assumption that there'd be a lack of better terms. Uh, oh, <laughs> Anthony said this is after his discussion about people not tuning their furnaces, let alone their nuclear reactors. He goes, I'm making the assumption that there'd be a there'd be, for a lack of better terms, a suitcase nuke in my utility room. If it's in sort of hub location, disregard my previous remarks. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they're, when they talk about micro-nuclear, I don't think they're like, yeah, every, you get a reactor, and you get a reactor, and you get a reactor. I think it was more of, uh, you know, just, you know, a plant smaller than, you know, say, the Three Mile Island or something. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, hydrogen is the way. Micro-nuclear would be stationary, not mobile. Um, uh, you don't get the maximum benefit if production is driven down by tax increase. Oh, I agree with that, Don. I think there's definitely a balance somewhere, uh, in there. Um, uh, right. That's, let's see. Um, 
sorry, I'm, I'm scrolling through whatever the comments are here. Okay, there we go. Um, <laughs> Harold apparently doesn't like it when I talk. I mean, he's on the show every day, but he doesn't like it when I talk. Apparently too much. It's just, boy, some people will complain if they were hung with a new rope. You know what I mean? Uh uh, Jeannie says, bird flu has been around for years. Number one, the bird won't be flying if it's sick. Number two, once the bird is deceased, the virus dies in three to five hours. It's spread by respiratory secretion. So unless you're trying to resuscitate the bird, you won't get it from the bird if it's been dead for five minutes. I mean, okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, I haven't hunted birds in years, so it really doesn't affect me. But I found it interesting that it had made the jump into mammals. Uh, not a whole lot number. The number is not high, but it's... Uh, Enough to uh, always give you a little bit of pause on that. So there you go. Um. <laughs> all right. I think I I think I caught all the. I think I caught all the comments this morning. Harold did did have a good and interesting comment that I missed earlier. I have a question. The state freeze food snap program crashed. Why didn't we see folks starving in the streets? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, are people able to do it? You know? Yeah. Um, Very, very interesting. Uh, All right. We're going to dive into this discussion again about the, um, the dark money behind the gas bans and how this essentially all comes. I want to continue reading. Um, how this essentially looks like the work of, uh, you know, politicians making the moves, but there is a lot of insidiousness behind it in this dark, this dark money push. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is a big, this is big business. This is a big industry. There is a whole push, a multi-billion dollar push, um, to, uh, to talk about this. And I am, this article, which I'm going to, let me see, where is it right here? I'm going to, I'm going to highlight this and drop it over to you so that you guys can read it for yourself because I'm not going to have time to get into the whole thing. But this is a very interesting article as you look at the push of the dark money behind the gas bans and what it means. I mean, they're all for electrifying America, right? But only if it doesn't include ideas like nuclear and other things. They are pushing strictly for um, renewables, you know, uh, wind, solar, that kind of stuff. They don't even want to talk about hydro. That's the big thing. They, I, that it, they don't even want to talk about hydro because you might damage the wetlands or something around where these dams would go in, even though overall it is the cheapest and most stable form of energy that we could create in this country, um, you know, with, with nuclear running a close, you know, second place behind it. It's not something that they want to talk about. All they want to talk about is wind and solar and everything else. And now we're hearing more and more about how a lot of these wind farms are, they're wanting to shut them down because of bird strikes and all this. I mean, just, it's crazy. It's crazy. We should talk about everything at once, not just the the few things that are favorited by a group of certain group of people. All right. We're going to come into this here and jump into this and talk about it. Uh, we will continue. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow. If you have not... Uh, if you've not subscribed on YouTube, uh, do that this morning. And uh, let's get to it. Here we go.
Okay. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for continuing with us. Yesterday, we got into a discussion. Oh, by the way, somebody just said in the chat room that apparently the Dalton Highway is closed. Um, I don't know why, but apparently the Dalton Highway is closed this morning. So be advised if you're traveling up in that area and you need to go. There you go. Um, so yesterday we were talking about this push, uh, that, you know, like I said, the first time that I heard about this, I swore to God, I thought, I thought for sure that it was a article from the onion or the Babylon Bee or some other, you know, satirical news site that they were, they being the, uh, they being the, uh, the news story was we're coming after your uh, we're coming after your gas stoves that they were making it illegal for they were making it illegal for natural gas appliances and, and stoves to be built into houses because I mean it there was a talk about asthma and children and uh, I don't know dogs and cats living together mass hysteria the whole thing turns out it was really the truth and in fact, now in the city of New York, they have decreed and created a, a new piece of legislation that basically would ban that any new construction from having um, natural gas appliances in their buildings, um, including gas stoves, etc. Now, they did exempt restaurants because, you know, New Yorkers got to have their food. But you, as a private citizen, couldn't do that. Now, we were talking about why the whole point was to try to electrify the homes, right? They want to they wanna make it so it's better, it's cleaner, it's everything else. But then I got down the rabbit hole in talking about this and ended up uh, at uh, over at Substack and reading a piece by uh, Robert Bryce uh, on this. Um, and it really do dives into the discussion, uh, about what is what, you know, why is there the push? What is the push about this? Um, Robert, uh, Bryce, by the way, is a, uh, author and a uh, commentator on energy policy and everything else. He's written six different books and he's been writing about energy and power for about, uh, 30 years. Uh, so he, uh, you know, so he, he has a little bit of knowledge about what we're talking about here. He goes on to talk about the big money donors that are behind this push to ban, to uh, ban gas and their funding. And the article is, I mean, this is a long article. So you, I've posted a link up into the chat room, or you can just go to robertbrice.substack.com and you can look for his dark money article. But he started talking about how there are some big names involved in here. Stacey Abrams is one that you probably recognize. She was the Democrat who was in the Georgia House of Representatives and ran against um, uh, ran for governor of Georgia the last two times. Um, she has now been hired by Rewiring America, which is a not which is a non governmental organization, an NGO that uh, is now spending about $4.5 billion a year to promote anti-energy policy. Well, anti-industry and energy industry policy. 
they basically have been pushing for basically that everything they want to ban natural gas, they want to ban uh, you know heating fuel, jet, uh, power generation, and everything else. All they want to do is have people live on what they call the uh, the renewables. Rewiring America was founded by Alex Lasky, Saul Griffith, and Ari uh, Matusayak. All have been involved in various ventures in wind, solar, and electrification. Um, Rewiring America cites Griffith's 2020, 2020 book, which is also called Rewiring America, in which he claims that uh, the only way to do this is to basically make America completely dependent on wind and solar and other renewable energy sources, that there should be no other generation. No mention, by the way, of hydro or nuclear energy uh, or attempting to run the economy on weather-dependent renewables that would require paving vast tracts of rural America into you know wind turbines or scraping up areas of ground to create big uh, solar panels arrays or anything else. Um, his article goes on to talk more and more about this, how there are a bunch of NGOs that are pushing for these natural gas bans, including the Climate Imperative Foundation, the Energy Foundation, the Windward Fund, and the Rocky Mountain Institute. And by reporting, because a lot of these do not have to report who actually funds them, because they fall under the 501c3 nonprofit disclosure and they don't file a Form 990 with the IRS, it's kind of impossible to know exactly who a lot of these people are, especially since they don't have to be named. But one of the more interesting, um, one of the more interesting graphs that came out here, and um, that that came out was he put he pulled all the money together and and did all the charting and said and found that there are four dark money NGOs who are pushing the gas ban the four that i just mentioned and they are nearly matching the spending of the top 25 traditional energy groups so these are energy groups that are pro hydrocarbon oil natural gas pro nuclear right those groups, those top 25 pro-hydrocarbon and pro-nuclear NGOs spend about $990 million a year in trying to affect policy. The top four dark money NGOs who are pushing the gas ban are at $820 million. They are near, The top four do almost as much as anybody else out there. And the thing is, there is no way of knowing exactly who any of these people are. Uh, we talk about one of the Windward Fund was one of the ones that I mentioned. They're closely tied to the Arabella Advisors Group. Now, if you remember uh, back in 2020 uh, or 2021, the New York Times had an article talking about Arabella where they were funneling hundreds of millions of dollars through a daisy chain of groups supporting Democrats and progressive causes. I mean, they were like, even the New York Times is like, this looks like a money laundering operation where they're funneling money through these you know, various NGOs so that nobody knows who originally put the money in. Uh, Windward's uh, fund's flood of cash is not coming from foundations. Instead, most of it is coming from super rich individuals. It did file a Schedule B on its 990. And it shows unnamed donations in the amount of $59 million, $24 million, $20 million, $16 million, $14 million, $13 million, $10 million, $9 million, $6 million, and $6 million, respectively, all from unnamed sources. So you got a bunch of plutocrats who are out there who are funding a lot of this stuff to try and eliminate 
gas stoves and other things and to force us onto renewable energies, which as we know, it cannot, the U.S., the any major economy cannot be run solely on weather-dependent renewable energy. That's it's just not feasible. As a backup, yes. As an ancillary thing, yes. But you have to have a baseline power generation that is not weather dependent. Um, he goes on to talk about this in this article and breaks down some of the various uh, the various organizations and how they are hiding a tremendous amount. Of, and part of part of the thing that has been pushed, by the way, in this banning of gas stoves is that what we need to do is we need to electrify all the homes. Everything's electric. The heat's electric. The power, the, the cooking, the whole, everything's electric. And that will save hundreds of dollars. And, the, and people will be able to, it'll be great. It'll be utopia. Except for, uh, of course, the Department of Energy uh, their energy equivalent residential energy cost chart that they put out saying that essentially as on a per BTU basis, electricity costs about three, three and a half times more than natural gas. So, so three and a half times more than natural gas. So it would cost you 46% more to heat your home with electricity than natural gas. I mean, if depending on where you are, I guess, but yeah. This article is fascinating because it takes a deeper look behind something that I was just uh, flabbergasted by to begin with. He also has another piece that I have not completely finished reading yet where he comes out uh, and talks about the uh, anti-industry industry. Uh, he have a, he has a, a piece about that. I might see if I can get uh, – Robert Bryce onto the program to talk about this in depth because this is a fascinating look behind the scenes at a multi-billion dollar industry basically trying to control how every one of us lives and pushing an ideology that is more based in fiction than in fact or or is I guess aspirational rather than than actual, you know, feasibly possible. Um, like everybody should just live on solar, wind, and other renewable sources. And, you know, if we just all did that, it would all be better all the way around. I mean, with no discussion on how you're going to create all these items that generate that power uh, and, you know, what happens when the wind stops blowing or it's a cloudy day or all these other weather-dependent issues. And again, no mention of of nuclear and no mention of hydro or anything else that's just a consistent baseline of what we need. No discussions on any of those. Uh, there's a lot of money at work here, folks. Billions of dollars is being pushed into this behind the scenes. And it's the biggest, it's the, you know, these are the biggest NGOs that you never heard of. The biggest, biggest non-governmental organizations that you've ever heard of that are behind the scenes, pulling the strings, helping to write legislation and do other things. And we have no clue what's going on. It's the spooky, spooky stuff. Anyway, you can go over to robertbryce.substack.com and look for his dark money column, and you will uh, you'll see the whole discussion on it. it. It it'll be fascinating. Okay, we are coming up uh, on the break here. Hour two is dead ahead. We've got our guest uh, ready to come on board. Richard McPherson is going to be joining us. Richard is the CEO of Idaho Energy, which is a subsidiary of Micronuclear LLC. 
Um, he's uh, been involved in the nuclear ener- uh, energy industry since ooh, 1964 and has a former U.S. representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, and one of their big studies. So we're going to talk with him about micronuclear and some of the other issues that we could be dealing with, uh, wind, solar, and more. And it should be a good partner discussion for what we just finished up here this morning. The Michael Duke Show continues. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. break right now top of the hour we're going to jump back into the show here in just a couple minutes let me get caught up in the chats and then i will touch base here with richard mcpherson who's waiting in the green room um and let's see what's uh let's see what's going on uh brian's in the chat room got his traveling shoes on today says he's hanging out um good morning good morning good morning uh, there was an accident with hazmat yesterday, the Dalton highway. There was an accident with hazmat. Uh, it's been cleared. Bill got notification that's been cleared. Thank you, Bill. I had not heard about the hazmat spill going up there, uh, as well. Um, uh, going here, uh, ultimate stupidity with renewables. The sheep are being herded to the slaughterhouses, Greg. Um, Timothy says, I think the end game of all this craziness is the destruction of the U.S. as a nation and green energy is a fundamental part of it. I mean, I think that continual push to this kind of more Luddite type society where we all just, I mean, that was my comment yesterday about the, you know, so what are we supposed to do? We can't use gas to cook. We can't use gas to heat. We're supposed to just lay our food out on a rock and dry it in the sun and it'll all be good. I mean, it's not like you build an all electric house and just magically the electricity appears. You know, how much, how much, we're already got rolling blackouts and now everybody's going to EVs and California is going to be facing rolling blackouts and more. So you're already have a stressed electrical grid and now you're demanding that everybody go even more electrical. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. You do not have the capacity to generate enough power to do all the things that these NGOs are pushing for. I mean, that's, it, it's insanity. Uh, like I said, when I first saw the whole article about the gas stoves being banned, I thought it was an article from The Onion. Um, Jeannie says, it never ceases to amaze me how sentient intellectual human beings can conscientiously be bought off by dark money to push a clearly ridiculous energy policy. Yeah. 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 And they don't want you to use wood stoves either because, uh, you know. So you can't burn wood to, to heat or cook or eat. You can't burn gas. You can't do it. You got to live electricity, but there's not enough electricity. And so it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into this here and uh, we'll uh, get things started. We're going to jump over here and start talking, uh, talking with our guest uh, joining us this morning, Richard McPherson who is uh, coming on the program to talk about uh, uh, rene- uh, all kinds of energy policies, including wind, solar, fusion, and more. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you? 
Good morning. How are you? And I didn't know who you were until I've just watched you for the last hour. Oh, okay. Well, and, good. Uh, can we have a few more common sense folks like you around? Well, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but at least I can figure out which end is the stick is pointy. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous at this point. We've got stuff going on. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about a lot of these concepts because I think the one thing that we keep missing in this whole discussion, uh, and obviously I think is is the discussion of alternatives like nuclear, micronuclear, and uh, some of the other things. I mean, it amazes me that we're talking about renewable energy, and the one thing that never gets discussed in the renewable energy debate is hydro. Hydro is, you know, overall, the it is the cheapest, most efficient, most affordable, mo cleanest er of, uh, energy generation by far, with nuclear coming in second. But you put in a dam. I mean, the Hoover Dam has been there for 100 years, still generating power at, what, three cents a kilowatt hour or something? I mean, it's insane. And yet, that's not part of the discussion. we got to build solar panels and things and all that. You know, and nobody ever talks about the, the, the it's it's just it it incenses me, I guess, at this point, Richard, that that's what's going on. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's amazing. This is the world we live in with 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 intelligent creatures like us, as Jeannie just said, intelligent creatures basically um, being bought off and uh, and and pushing this clearly insane energy policy uh, agendas. Uh, for billions of dollars that most people don't even know about. I agree with you about the hydro. And the unfortunate thing about hydro is we focused on large hydro uh, during a period of time um, during World War II when we needed a bunch more electricity. And one of the things that's been overlooked over the years is micro or mini hydro. Um, the United States has put some in, not nearly enough, uh, about 10 years or so ago, I talked with a fellow back in, in Pennsylvania. They'd had a um, micro hydro plant working there that was like, you know, four or 500 kilowatts, but it had been working since 1909. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it doesn't have to be the size of the Hoover Dam. It doesn't have no. to be Niagara Falls. It could be a small creek or stream that's running. I mean, I've I've seen plans for home-based micro hydro. You know, I mean, there's there's all yeah. kinds of things that can be done with that. All right. Uh, I don't want to get too far into this, Richard, because we're just coming up out of the commercial break and we're going to start the hour. Uh, and we're it's going to be all you all the time for the next uh, for the next hour or so. I'm really interested to pick your brain and talk uh, about a lot of these things. And so uh, let's get ready for a free roaming conversation on this. Okay, uh, we'll I'm be, ready. Okay, we'll be right back to you. Don't go anywhere. Richard McPherson, our guest. We're going to continue here in just a second. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Please, if you haven't, like and share the show. Uh, like and follow the show page. Make sure that you hit subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube uh, because every day we try and bring you a little bit of common sense. I mean, we try. It's amazing they call it common. It's so rare, that common sense thing. All right. Here we go. Hour two starts right now.
Whoa, buddy. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. It is the Michael Dukes Show, Thursday edition of the show. Appreciate you joining us. We're going to jump right into it today. Our discussion has been, in part, uh, a continuation of yesterday's discussion about energy policy uh, and, of course, the ridiculousness of trying to ban uh, one of the cleanest burning hydrocarbons out there, natural gas uh, and everything else. And that kind of morphed into a discussion of uh, energy, uh, you know, across the country. Uh, you know, we've got news about rolling blackouts. We've got uh, all this idea how everything should be pushed to electrical, but we have no infrastructure to make it happen. Uh, and now they want more EV cars and they want everything to be pushed on that. Of course, the one thing that they're really not talking about is the alternatives to renewables, uh, which, of course, include uh, uh, hydro and micronuclear. And so to discuss this with us and to come on board and talk with us is Richard McPherson. He's the CEO of Idaho Energy, which is a subsidiary of micronuclear. He's been involved in the nuclear industry uh, since 1964. And he was the U.S. representative to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, on a big study called Nuclear Fuel Cycle Facilities. Uh, and he is focusing on manufacturing and deploying uh, nuclear batteries, which we here in Alaska are pretty familiar with because that's been a discussion and a talking point we've had for, oh, like I said, maybe the last 15 years. So I remember we were talking about it in Fairbanks for the Toshiba nuclear battery maybe 15 years ago, and uh, how that could solve a lot of our rural energy, I mean, super rural, like urban bush and bush community and village problems. Joining us right now, Richard McPherson uh, comes on the program to discuss, and uh, we welcome him to the show. Good morning, sir. Thank you for coming on board. We appreciate it. Good morning. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to talking to you and talking about Alaska. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, uh, we just got done talking about this idea, which seems to be uh, taking a lot of getting a lot of, uh, of of press, which, of course, is this idea of eliminating hydrocarbons in any way, shape or form, not just fuel oil, not just heating oil, but now natural gas and everything else. One of the p cleanest burning hydrocarbons. Uh, and this push to electrify everything, everything in the home should be electrified, your heating, your gas, your or your your cooking and all this other kind of stuff. But there's some potential problems that we've talked about. I mean, namely, we don't have a power grid 
that is capable of generating enough power to do all those things. We're already talking about rolling blackouts in places like California and things like that. You know, they want everybody to get an EV, an electrical vehicle, regardless of the fact that in Alaska, they don't work nearly as well as they do in other places, right? Um, and, of course, we don't have charging stations and, again, the power thing. But, I mean, this whole thing is is a push to this renewable energy, which is a weather-dependent system, and yet they leave out things like hydro, be it macro or micro, and they leave out the what I think is probably the future of the way things are going, which is nuclear. Um, give us your thoughts on what we've been talking about. Well, you're right about hydro, and I, uh, I've been trying to get people to do more hydro and um, also more geothermal over the years. Uh, once we came up with geothermal, the problem was um, originally that they were using up all the water uh, right. or they were spilling it out over the countryside. They, once they came up with a, a system where they uh, reclaimed the water and pumped the brine and everything back down the ground, they had a pretty good system. And the best system that was, uh, that was made back in the uh, 70s uh, was down at the China Lake Naval Ordnance Test Station. And I got to visit with a guy that put it in there and it and it sort of led the way into much better systems we have. But we don't have enough of them. We're not taking advantage of geothermal the way we can around the world. Now, also, we're not taking advantage of hydro. Uh, last summer, I had somebody approach me about the Congo River, which is about the fifth or sixth time in my life that somebody has. And I said, it's very simple with the Congo River, any of those rivers. Um, the people live in small villages along the 2,900 miles. Micro or mini hydro is available, and that's what you should be pursuing. You don't need to put in a large electrical grid where it's almost impossible to put it in, and the electrical grids are very vulnerable to all kinds of uh, things that will upset it. So. Um, but going into this, I would like you to know a couple of things. First of all, I'm an all-energy person. I'm one of the few people that we know that is all an all-energy person. I've worked in every energy type of energy conversion there is. And talking about energy conversion, people like to use the term um, renewable energy. Right. And it's not renewable. That's the first thing that people make a mistake. <laughs> they bought into the fact that it's renewable. Well, because they're thinking about the wind and they're thinking about the solar. and uh, But the fact of the matter is you have to have something that converts wind and solar into usable electricity. There is where the renewable goes away. Right. Because the, the, the capabilities to turn them into something useful causes other problems such as for both wind and solar, when you cover the ground over with them, you're creating ecological damage underneath them of a four billion years of evolution. It's bad enough that we take in some areas and indiscriminately cover them over and we do the same thing. We don't need to be doing that with wind and solar. Also, wind and solar take too much of our natural resources out of the ground, which are finite. We can't afford it. 
You're, we also ta- have no way- you're, you're talking about the construction of the actual mechanisms for converting that energy, the silicon, the right. solar panels, right. the generation, the, the wind, all those takes uh, very specific resources of which, again, there is a finite amount. And the cost and the lifespan of those things, I saw a study one time that said a solar panel doesn't ever even pay back its uh, its production costs is in terms of energy because of how much energy it takes to produce that panel. In, in, when you look at the total life cycle uh, costs of uh, solar panel or wind, they do not. You're right. Um, but the thing is, is that people have bought into this. So here's why they bought into it. There was a law passed in 1974. There was a knee-jerk reaction to the uh, Arab oil embargo in 1973 by Congress that allowed the Congress to take money away from taxpayers and give it to developers of wind and solar. It didn't take long for people in Congress to find out that they could give it to developers and the developers would kick back money to them to get them reelected. And the same <laughs> thing is now happening with batteries. Right, right. No, I mean, that's the thing. Batteries, these big lithium things, the Tesla wall thing, all those things are great, except for one, they are extremely resource hungry. And two, they require power to be generated somewhere else in some other form to then feed them, uh, which is just, I mean, again, it's like, oh, we'll have an all electric thing. Yeah, but where is the electricity going to come from? You may be not hurting the environment or not expelling hydrocarbons in one area, but you've just upped the production of hydrocarbons in another area. So it's 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 insane. They leave that out of the equation. They just talk about charging. And so... You brought up California earlier as a good example. California is, they're nuts in a lot of ways, but the electricity use is the worst of all. Um, They have to import uh, perhaps 15,000 megawatts a day when the wind and solar is not operating. They also use wind and solar. Uh, They put put so much into wind and solar in California that they're actually not able to use it all during some times of the day when you have but they have a lot of sun and a lot of solar. So that's all taxpayers. So that's taxpayers' money. So the politicians and the governor of California, they don't care. But taxpayers should care, but taxpayers are being sold a bill of goods. Right. You talk about uh, Alaska, okay, and you talk about getting rid of natural gas. Well, natural gas provides about 50% of the home heating or residence or building heating in the state of Alaska, you've got the you got the pipelines in place. You've got the natural gas available. It's stupid to get rid of natural gas. And when you talk about everybody trying to force us into electricity, um, electricity in Alaska is about fourteen percent thereabouts that used for heating. That's not very much. So to get rid of the natural gas, you're going to have to. Uh, put in a bunch of transmission and distribution lines, which are very vulnerable. And in my opinion, because uh, I started my first 20 years in the Navy, and I've been involved in energy, national security, and economics ever since then, uh, Alaska is the number one uh, state at risk from China, North Korea, and Russia. And to do anything to upset, uh, instead of enhance the capabilities in Alaska, is stupid. And Alaska does need nuclear. I need to take you back and tell you something else. 
When I was at the International Atomic Energy Agency, I maintained an office in, in California, and I was visiting back there around 1991. My secretary says, the governor of Alaska is on the phone for you. I said, are you sure? Sandy said, he says he's a governor. So I said, I'll take it because no governor had ever called me. <laughs> so it's, it's Wally Hickel. And he said, can you be up here tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock in the morning for a meeting about energy at the Captain Cook Hotel? And I said, yes. <laughs> I didn't know he owned the Captain Cook Hotel. I also didn't know how I was going to get there. And Sandy found me a flight that was leaving in 40 minutes from San Diego. <laughs> and I was before trying to get through something today. Right. And I actually made the flight, went to uh, Seattle and went up to Anchorage. And I attended a meeting and he, he had a simple request. He had found out about me from somebody in Washington, D.C. I forget who now. And um, he had a very simple request to us that were in the room. There was uh, six other people from Alaska and myself and him. And he said, I want to find a way to reduce the cost of energy for Alaskans. And he said that the oil pipeline has peaked and now it's falling off. We will see a day that there will not be enough oil in the pipeline uh, for it to continue to flow. Um, so your point earlier that in, the, in the show, when you talked about the new uh, field coming online, that's really good. Right. And there's lots of opportunities to do that in Alaska, and Alaska should be pursuing them. So he said, but he made a simple request. So for two years, I worked with him, uh, both in and out of the state. And we looked at everything, including nuclear. And that's when Toshiba showed up one day with their forest system, uh, about 2003, somewhere in there. Well, I knew what Toshiba was trying to design, but they hadn't designed it yet. And the claims that they were making to the people in Galena and other places in Alaska were not true. But I didn't say anything. I just watched it. Because if they could actually develop that and make it work, it would be very helpful in Alaska. Fast forward to today, we do have that power plant for Alaska, and it's called the Molten Salt Nuclear Battery. And the Molten Salt Nuclear Battery is a product of a man that was at uh, Capel with Naval Reactors. He went there in 1983, the year I retired. He designs nuclear reactors for the Navy, Dr. Paul Murata. And I got a call uh, from him in uh, early 2018. And he said, I've developed a reactor that has no pumps and no valves. It's natural circulation. I was hooked. So I only intended on advising him a little bit along the way. But now what's happened is I found somebody that can manufacture it in Idaho, in Blackfoot, Idaho, called Premier Technologies Incorporated. And so I've accepted the position to uh, take the responsibility to get them manufactured and tested and deployed. And I've been to Alaska twice uh, in, in the uh, last few months. I went to Elmendorf, excuse me, I went to Allison Air Force Base just to listen to what they're proposing up there. And they're proposing, as the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force said, as a project or pilot plant to see if micro reactors will work and provide electricity and steam by sometime around 2030. So I was nice enough not to tell her that we proved that point during the, um, during the Manhattan Project, and we've proved that same point 
uh, with every nuclear submarine that's been built since. Right, exactly. So I just left that alone. Um, actually, I also didn't tell them at Eilson Air Force Base that I'd been there 30 years before. I'd been to all the military bases in Alaska. It was part of what I was doing with Governor Hickel. And my recommendation was they get off the sources they're at now from a national security standpoint and go to nuclear. They haven't done that. Eilson Air Force Base is dependent upon 15 rail cars a day arriving from Usabelli Mine um, during the middle of the winter when it's 50, 60 degrees below. And if those rail cars don't arrive, Eilson Air Force Base becomes uh, a base that you've got 6,000 people working and living there that you suddenly have to figure out how to save their lives from freezing to death. Right. Because they're totally dependent on coal. So I'm not very impressed with over the last 30 years, our Department of Defense hasn't done a better job at protecting our bases. Because as the commanding officer of Allison Air Force Base said, we are the tip of the spear against China, North Korea, and Russia. Because I've got 54 F-35s here. Well, the tip of the spear in one day can become no longer the tip of the spear, but a group of people that need to be rescuing from the lower 48. And the lower 48 is not capable of doing it in time. Right. No, this is a and and this is something that I've been arguing about for a long time. Again, starting back in the two, early 2000s with the discussion of the nuclear battery. We're talking with Richard McPherson uh, from Micronuclear, and we're going to continue this discussion here in just a moment. Coming up on the break. So we're going to continue this discussion and look at real world scenarios. Look at what the solution is. Talk specifically about their uh, micro reactor and what it could mean, not just for Alaska, but for the rest of the country. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Uh, we're back in the commercial break right now with Richard McPherson. Um, you know, Richard, this. It, it it astonishes me, like you said, 30 years and they're going, oh, well, maybe we should test. It's been tested. I mean, I've never understood that whole idea. You've got nuclear aircraft carriers, destroyers, submarines that for years have been utilizing this small plant technology, um, you know, small plant captive technology, and you could be running bases around the world. You could be running municipalities and cities and whole power grids with this. And, uh, you know, you haven't had a problem with these nuclear reactors on these ships. Uh, and those are like full reactors. These aren't like battery self-contained things, right? I mean, this is a whole thing. And now you've got a technology that's even better. And yet they're still acting like we're in the test phases of this thing. Yeah, well, you, you got the governments are all the same. The whether it's a, a city government, a state government, or the federal government, there are a bunch of. It's made up of a bunch of individual organizations that I call stovepipe. They have their budgets, they have their jobs, and they're happy for the next year. In the case of the federal government, the federal government is stovepiped with thousands of them, and they don't talk to each other. It's one of the reasons why we were attacked on 9-11, because you had 95 intelligence services uh, within the government that didn't communicate with each other. We knew what was there. Some of them knew part of what was coming 
on 9-11, but they never put it together because they didn't communicate. Well, it's even worse when it comes to energy. We haven't had a cogent energy policy during my lifetime. Uh, the closest we came to it was when a former chief of naval operations by the name of Admiral James D. Watkins became Secretary of Energy under Ronald Reagan. He started getting his hands around the Department of Energy and started to make it worthwhile. Unfortunately, that was the same time I was representing the United States at the International Atomic Energy Agency. And, and by the way, our, our four years of study over there was because of Chernobyl. And uh, we studied nuclear fuel cycle facilities, the environment and public opinion. I'm the only American that's ever had the um, opportunity to do that for four years uninterrupted. So getting back to Alaska and getting to back to the molten salt nuclear battery. Alaska has uh, a bunch of military bases and they should, they should already have the molten salt nuclear battery. Um, I can tell you that we notified the Department of Defense that it existed, but we weren't gonna talk about it in 2019. And the Department of Defense hasn't taken advantage of it. Um, Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, Wake Island, the Northern Marianas Islands, and the uh, Republic of Palau are all at the greatest risk from China. Uh, we know what China is up to. We know what they'd like to do. They're cooperating with North Korea. They're cooperating with Russia. It's absolutely uh, foolish that Alaska is not already protected, and they can be uh, starting next year. Um, Alaska is probably paying on average, um, some pay, some are higher, some are a little bit lower, depending on whether it's summer or winter, but Alaska is paying 20, by around 20 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity with a molten salt nuclear battery. And to give you an idea of just the, uh, design that was made just for military bases, it's a 10 megawatt design. It's 1.5 meters in diameter. It's three meters tall comes with a very small, so that is the size of a 10 megawatt molten salt nuclear battery, a micro reactor. That's all, that's all it is. They're designed to be in an underground vault or in the case of Alaska, up where um, you have the tundra, it'll go into an above ground vault that'll be made similar to, it'll almost look like a ship's hull. Um, but we can produce, like, depending on the transportation costs, or what taxes that the government might impose on it, we can produce electricity and, and match that 20 cents per kilowatt hour or less, but it'll be EMP protected, electromagnetic right. protected, yeah. and cyber protected hold, electricity. Hold, hold on a second here, Richard. We're about to rejoin the radio, uh, and uh, I don't want to repeat ourselves too much here. Uh, Richard McPherson is our guest. Uh, the Michael Duke Show continues. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Let's uh, let's do this thing. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy. Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Huh. Whew! I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. That's right. Not your daddy, nor your daddy's talk radio. It is the Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We do it every day right here. We're continuing our discussions now on energy with Richard McPherson. Uh, we're talking specifically about micronuclear. 
And, uh, of course, this has been something that's been kicked around for a long time. And I was just saying to Richard, it amazes me that we have had nuclear-capable uh, uh, warships in the United States for decades, and yet we've never converted or moved that kind of idea onto you know, military bases or for civilian applications. And those are like regular reactors. He's talking about something completely different, a self-contained unit with this molten salt reactor that is uh, doesn't require all the bells and whistles that you'd see out there. And he was just telling us <clears throat> the difference here. Now, Richard just said that the average cost of power in the state of Alaska is about 20 cents per kilowatt hour. I could tell you that the people in Fairbanks would love to see 20 cents a kilowatt hour because I think they're paying upwards. I think when I left nine years ago, I was paying something like 29 cents in Glen Allen. I know they're paying like 37 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, I mean, it's very, very expensive. When you've got a family of four and your electric bill is $500 a month, um, it's a significant chunk. And if it could be done cheaper, more efficiently, and environmentally sound, uh, more environmentally sound, more consistent. That makes sense. And these nuclear batteries that you're talking about are not, uh, these are not, this is not a big uh, three-mile island, giant funnels in the sky and everything else. You were just telling us that a single 10 megawatt unit is about the size of a large propane tank and can be uh and can be it can be put just about anywhere right so give us the description of what this means so you're uh, you're talking about a large propane tank that's pretty good so if you turn it up so if you turn it up on its end that's about it so um originally dr paul Murata, who came from naval reactors was designing reactors there for the navy uh, he came up with this, and and, and he, he made the size, the original size, for all our military bases in the country because he knows they need protecting and they're not protected. So it's one point, for the 10 megawatt size, it's 1.5 meters in diameter and three meters tall. And then it just sends, simply sends heat over to a small gen, a 10 megawatt generator. So... We, we, we right now say you need about a 100 foot by 100 foot footprint uh, on the ground to take into account the whole facility and the fence that goes around it. The reality is we've recently found, thanks to the Department of Energy, we've recently found a very small turbine, turbine generator. And it is the coolest turbine generator I've ever seen in my life. And I have seen a lot of them. And so we're gonna be able to reduce that 100 by 100 feet to probably 50 by 50 feet. So the intention is to put these in an underground vault to protect them. Um, and one of them will run for 10 years. And Paul calls it a battery because there's gonna be no refueling in place. There's nothing gonna be left there that's radioactive. We're simply gonna replace it with another one at the end of 10 years. So it's like a battery. Uh, people fear that uh, that we're going to somehow leave radionuclides all over the place for years. Not true. Just like your car, you have from every three years or four years, you take your car in and they pull out a battery and put in a new one. Same thing will happen here. Right. It'll, uh, it'll go back to a central facility, and we're already designing the systems for recycling the fuel in there, um, and a new one will be, will be put in place. 
Now, there are some overland transportation issues in some parts of Alaska. Sure. So that might add to the cost a little bit. But um, in reality, um, the 20 cents per kilowatt hour that I quoted is a number that I've had for quite a while for Alaska. Um, I don't know if, I don't think we were on the air when I was telling you that I got the call uh, back around 1991 when I was visiting from the International Atomic Energy Agency to my office in California. And my secretary said uh, the governor of Alaska is on the phone. Right, right. Yeah, we talked about that. And, and you, you got a chance to, to meet and to help plan some of this two, stuff. For two years, I tried to help. We, we looked at everything for Alaska. And, and Wally Hickel, just simply his simple statement was this. I want to reduce the costs of energy for the people of Alaska. At the end of two years, I told him, I called him up and I said, Wally, I can't help you anymore because there's too many factions in the state that do not want to reduce the cost of electricity, uh, cost of energy for people in Alaska. So that, and that's unfortunate because it, we could have done it then. Yeah, no, I mean, the whole thing is unfortunate. And as you said, even back were discussions 20 years ago uh, about the Toshiba battery, which was in concept. It wasn't even designed yet. You guys have now done it. Um, I mean, we've look, we've had uh, what was it? Uh, it was um, not clear, but uh, out in Delta, Greeley, Greeley, Fort Greeley had a nuclear, a regular nuclear reactor. Yes. Uh, and uh, that has since been decommissioned. And I know that you, like you said, you've been up to Alaska recently. You've been visiting at Elmendorf and Eielson. And they're all looking at this because Alaska is at the point of the spear. And we need something that we can fall back on. Um, and and quite honestly, not just for military applications, but for civilian applications. I mean, as much as I enjoy the cost of low, the, the low cost of energy where I live now, because it's all being generated by natural gas, if it could be done uh, for a, on a nuclear basis, we wouldn't have to worry about a lot of these things. Um, and it would be, uh, again, just a, I'm assuming you can hook these up in series and, and, you know, go from 10 megawatts and scale it up to 100 megawatts, right? I mean, this is something that could be yeah. done in, in general. Yeah, there's no limit to how many we could put. It, 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 it's a very sm small footprint. Um, you've got 149, uh, last number I've got is 149 incorporated cities in the uh, state of Alaska. You've also got uh, 30 uh, Army National Guard uh, facilities in Alaska. Uh, the military bases in the Army National Guard and Coast Guard, by the way, are the three most logical places or characterizations of places to put the molten salt nuclear battery first. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, there is a city in Alaska that's talking to us right now about that. So, but the reason I say that is because the incorporated cities have something called first responders. From the state level, uh, the greatest capacity for first responders is with the National Guard. So those are the ones that should be getting molten salt nuclear batteries first for continuity of services. Um, then to give you an idea of an average US city, one 10 megawatt molten salt nuclear battery can power 4,900 homes for 10 years. Now in Alaska, you're widely dispersed. So we may not use 10 megawatt reactors. 
we may use a five megawatt reactor or even less or some range in there. But we know what the usage is in all the cities and we would just match them for the cities. Right. And they would be underground in most cases uh, in the southern part of the state. Up where the tundra is, they would simply be above ground in a vault that would look similar to the hull of a vessel. And, um, and, and we do that because as the tundra melts and moves around a little bit from times of the year, you want this facility to be able to move around with it. Right. So and we've already taken that into account and designed it. The, you know, the biggest challenge here in the state of Alaska, of course, is our geography, our vast, I mean, we've got vast distances. And the problem, of course, is the, is the cost of creating infrastructure from power generation to end users. Uh, we do have the rail belt, right? We stretched, a, we stretched the inner tie between Anchorage and Fairbanks, 400 miles across the tundra of towers and wires and everything else. Uh, and of course, the big challenges in the villages and other places. How do we get there? How do we get to Galena? How do we get to Bethel? How do we get to, uh, you know, Barrow and various places around the state? This would alleviate a lot of those problems because you wouldn't have to build out the expensive generation uh, uh, transmission capacity between the various points. And the transmission also, the transmission system in the United States has been really good to us over the years. But the transmission system now, whether it's in Alaska or any state or the entire North American, um, it's too vulnerable for many kinds of attacks. Or even as we're seeing in recent years, wildfires down in California, Oregon and Washington, or freezing in Texas and other places. Um, we started with a great North American blackout in 1965. We haven't learned from that. And uh, we also know that um, China and Russia are in cyberwise into our networks. They can shut us down anytime we want. So we need to be providing electricity closer to the end user. And that's one of the advantages of the molten salt nuclear battery. As far as cost goes, you said that uh, these batteries could uh, make it comparable at the 20 cents a kilowatt hour or less. I'm assuming that there is a substantial investment up front in the cost of the molten salt battery. What, uh, you know, what are, what are we talking about cost-wise for power generation? Uh, you know, give us an idea, ballpark it here, under what these things would cost uh, on an ongoing basis. I mean, in, basically on a 10-year cycle, what would it take to do something like that? Well, this is going to surprise you. Um, we are actually setting up and working with some people setting up another company. It's a leasing company. We're not going to sell these. We're going to lease them. Okay. So whatever you're paying cents per kilowatt hour, um, you can just keep paying it. Uh, more than like, so we'll, we can do a, con we'll do a contract probably for a lease that will be fixed for 10 years. There will probably be a CPI adjustment because of what the government might do to make changes in what the cost would be. Uh, but we're gonna lease them and we're gonna lease them on a cents per kilowatt hour basis. So if the city of Anchorage, for instance, is paying 30 cents per kilowatt hour now, they probably have to pay something less for 10 years. The important thing about that is, is we will match it with a 10 year lease and friends of mine who work in the utilities and have to deal with tariffs, where they go to the state utility commissions every year, 
they tell me that we might see in the United States, we might see the cost of electricity triple in the next 10 years. In the case of the molten salt nuclear battery, it would be fixed for 10 years with the exception of probably a CPI adjustment. So overall cheaper, more affordable, not dependent on hydrocarbons or renewables or anything else. Although you see this as a, you see this as part of the overall puzzle. This is not a standalone. This would be in conjunction with things like hydro, geothermal, tidal, uh, wind, solar, all of those things could work together uh, to create a more sound grid. Yeah, whatever you have. And of course, when you get to wind and solar, what you have is intermittent and unreliable. So it makes for an unstable grid. People know that it's a problem all over the place. Um, the taxpayer, the only reason we have wind and solar and batteries now is because of taxpayers, politicians taking money away from taxpayers and giving it to developers. Um, there's one other thing that... Um, well, before you get into the one other thing here, uh, Richard, let me uh, let me go back to break here because we're going to take our final break of the hour and then we'll finish up with Richard McPherson uh, from Micronuclear LLC. And we're going to talk with him uh, a little bit more about how this could work and what kind of time frame and, and reality we're actually looking at. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. We're broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the Internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay. Uh, in the break here with uh, Richard... McPherson, I've seen some questions in the chat room, Richard. Let me go back here and see what uh, some of the folks are saying uh, about this or some questions from the chat room here. Um, <clears throat> I want a micro-nuclear reactor for my house. Well, if your house could use a 10 kW or 10 megawatt, I don't think uh, <laughs> even if they could scale it down, I don't know. Maybe you could have a neighborhood reactor that could serve a neighborhood. Um, uh, Patrick asks, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Clear have a nuclear power plant? It was Greeley, I think is what you're thinking about. I don't believe Clear did. I know Greeley had one. Uh, it was Greeley. Yeah, Greeley. Um, is he aware of other countries that are already implementing this technology? Asked Deshana. Is any other country already implementing this type of, uh, battery? I mean, the Microsalt is your guys's baby, but is it, uh, is it, is similar, similar, uh, fields of thought being used in other countries right now? Um, the easy answer is yes, but here's why. Um, we only disclosed that we had this uh, in April at a presentation I made down in Florida. There was an annual meeting of an outfit called PACE, about 200 business owners. They have over a million employees around the country. And their theme this year was Saving America. And I was asked to come down and give a presentation about the molten salt nuclear battery and save in America, which I did. So it came as a surprise to them and it came to surprise a lot of people. Uh, then we put out some press releases and we have created a 10 minute video, which is on our website. So uh, we've already been approached uh, by somebody in Mexico, somebody in, uh, in Africa, and we've been approached and we're in serious conversations with people in the UK. 
And uh, now just uh, two nights ago, I got an email from somebody in uh, Sydney, Australia. So the word is already getting out. Um, one of the, the, the one that's uh, in the UK, they're very interested in powering mines. They own some mines in various countries around the world because this uh, makes it ideal for a mine site because now you don't have to truck in all that diesel fuel. Right. Um, are there any other downsides to this other than the transportation aspect you were talking about? I mean, that's kind of the tricky part, trying to get it transported to where it needs to be. Once it's in place, it's ultimately safe. I imagine the most delicate part is moving it across to open ground somewhere. Any other downsides? You know, I get asked this question all the time, but keep in mind that I've been in this business since 1963 at the International Atomic Energy Agency, I got to see every design there is, and I've been to most, quite a few of the facilities around the world. Um, we don't have any downside that we're aware of, uh, and we've got the smartest group of people working on this that's ever been assembled uh, working on nuclear power today. So there is no there is no downsides. Um, every every uh, the question of waste is going to come up. Every energy. Um, Every energy conversion system has waste, as we do. But because we're going to recycle most of the fuel, we'll recycle over 90% of it and put it in, in other molten salt nuclear batteries. We're going to have a, some small amount of it left over as actinides. We already know how we're going to store them. And we also see technology changing to where some of the actinides will be used. So we don't have the we don't have the problem that light water reactors have. Light water reactors being pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors, of which about 66% of the current American fleet of commercial reactors is pressurized water reactors. Um, this is uh, this is interesting um, as far as conversion. Uh, actually, I want to get into that question once we get back to the radio. So I don't because I don't want to repeat ourselves. Uh, Timothy makes the point part of the part of the cost, uh, part of the cost of what we're dealing with is power companies have no competition. Is this something the power companies could pick up themselves uh, instead of uh, having it be a municipality or a government org or anything like that? Could private power companies or cooperatives, as we have in the state, could they decide we're going to shut down our our fuel oil burners, we're going to shut down our natural gas generation? And we could just literally park this here and plug it into the equipment that we have now. We've taken, are we on the air? Not yet. We're about a minute and a half okay. out. Okay. Uh, we've taken this into account because the energy, the utilities have to come into the modern world. And we're going to teach them how to come in the modern world. They're in the energy business. They want to stay in the energy business. Just like oil companies are really in the energy business. They want to stay there. And we've already been approached by one of the oil companies. So the oil companies do a better job at knowing to stay in the business than utilities do. But utilities are going to have to come in the modern world. We'll help them do that. All right. The ding means we're about to return to radio. So uh, let's get things going on. Richard McPherson is our guest. Please like and share this show. Uh, like and follow the show page. Uh, let's get more people involved in this conversation and uh, and get educated on it. Richard McPherson continues with us here. It is the Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like it, share, like it, share. Here we go.
Okay, continuing and finalizing our discussion here with Richard McPherson, uh, nuclear energy expert, uh, also with Micronuclear LLC. You can find out information about this and watch a 10-minute video that they put together on their website at micronucleartech.com. They've got a whole video describing the molten salt nuclear battery, what it can do, uh, and uh, everything else. I'm interested to find out more. Let's talk about conversion uh, here, uh, Richard. This is something that could be plugged into existing generation systems, right? This does not require a whole build-out on something new or anything else. This could be, I mean, if you've got utilities or co-ops or uh, it doesn't have to be just military or government, but if you've got private co-ops, this could be something they could explore and would require very little conversion, right? Because all you're doing is re removing the generation component uh, component of it and you're plugging it into the steam and the and the turbines and everything else. It's already there. This would require a pretty low amount of conversion in that regard, right? Yes. Um, the utilities, uh, they're in the energy business and they want to stay in the energy business. To be fair to the utilities, they have been hampered by changes in public policy for decades. And what I've seen during my lifetime is CEOs and presidents of utilities came from the power generation side and knew how it worked into having to have lawyers and bankers and accountants be the senior people in utilities because they've got to deal with the regulations, changing regulations all the time, whether they be from the federal government or from the state. So they have, they've been ruined as, as good companies simply by changes in public policy. We've made allowances for them with a molten salt nuclear battery to teach them how to convert from where they are today into a new modern utility that does not depend on the grid, that puts power directly to the end users. The question is, of course, as I said, we've been talking about this in the state. You, you said 1991 was when Hickel contacted you. We've been talking about it in the public more, came into the public eye in the early 2000s with, again, the discussion on the Toshiba battery and everything. But we've been talking about this for 30 years in the state, and yet we seem to be no closer than ever before. And, of course, energy, uh, cheap, affordable, reliable energy is the cornerstone of any progressing civilization. In fact, it's what makes the whole thing turn. It, what It's what allows us to innovate and gives us time to think and invent and and create art, music, and science and everything else. Uh, and so it is one of the most important things. How far away are, I mean, is this more pie in the sky? Because again, a lot of us, are, like I said, been watching this for years and thinking, oh, it'll be next year. Oh, it'll be, oh, to five years. Oh, it'll be. But it sounds like this is that we're ready that maybe now is the time and we're ready. What, what do you think? Yeah, we're, we're in the final design. We've been, been doing computer modeling and testing all along the way. So we have done the testing that we can do without uranium uh, to match it against the computer modeling now for five years. And all of our uh, testing has been done with scaled models that are the, exactly scaled to what the molten salt nuclear battery would be. And in all cases, it matched the computer programming or computer modeling. Uh, to give you an idea of what computer modeling that we talk about is, you may be familiar with the Boeing 777 Dreamliner. Right. 
And that was an airplane that was that was designed and built and flown on a computer. Well, that's where we are today. Uh, we don't have to come up with prototypes anymore. We can do all of our design work and all of our testing for safety analysis and everything on computers, and we've done that. We're getting ready to enter into an agreement with a national laboratory. It appears as though we're going to, they want one of these so they can get the data from it. Once we do that, we will then have, we will then be able to go into production for places like military bases, Coast Guard bases, um, Native Indian corporations, um, National Guard units, because what we're going to do, in, instead of going through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for cities and commercial purposes first, we're going to get one of these operating on a federal reservation so we have real data. So we're not like everybody else that goes to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that has a bunch of anti-nuclear nuclear people running it and be at the mercy of them for years. We're going to, we're going to, we're working. There's a lot of people working with us. I'm in Washington, D.C. right now. And I suddenly became a big hit back here. And people have been asking me to come to visit because our approach is completely different. But you got to understand, Michael, we're all old. We've been in this business for a long time. <laughs> uh, I've been in it since 64. I've got another guy that's went to the same nuclear power classes I did. He was in Alaska with me recently. And um, we have the single best team that's in the design and overall nuclear business that's ever been put together in the world. So I, I was just going to say, you, you're not a spring chicken. So does this get done? <laughs> does this get done in your lifetime? Does it get done in my yeah. lifetime? I mean, that's my we, question. If, if I get my way, we will be actually manufacturing them for uh, lease and, and uh, installations uh, next year. Next year. So, I mean, really, technically, in five to ten years, these could be proliferating around the country, not just in military bases, but potentially on the commercial side as well. My goal is in 10 years is to have 27,000 of them in, working in the United States. 27,000. I mean, this is, <clears throat> I think this is the ultimate, uh, this is the ultimate goal. This is where we need to go. And if you've got a 95% recapture, 90, 95% recapture on fuels and everything else, and the waste issue is, so is solved, and again, this is much more, uh, you know, it's a safer unit. It's all self-contained. I'm, I, I could see as how this could be the future. Uh, we're coming down to the last couple of minutes here, Richard. So I wanted to give you the floor and just let you uh, summate and, and sum up and wrap up and tell us how we can help or find out more. What do we need to do? Well, we can stay in touch and you can find out more. You can go to our website. Now that we've, we've gone public with what we're doing and who we are, we're going to be updating our website all the time. Um, we're not going to be uh, we're not going to be quiet about what we're doing. We're not going to be secretive of what we're doing. Uh, unlike most of the other manufacturers today, we have our uh, manufacturing side is all in place. Uh, the manufacturer that we have an agreement with, uh, there's something uh, called uh, there, there's a nuclear quality assurance standard that comes out of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. And the company that we've chosen to partner with and, and certify them is in Blackfoot, Idaho called Premier Technology Inc. They've already done over a thousand jobs, mostly for the government, some for private industry, under that NQA1, that Nuclear Quality Assurance Standard. 
and they're the ones that we're going to have build ours. And in all respects, we're ready to go with the exception, we've got to get this first test out of the way, but we have somebody that wants the data from it. So they're starting to drive our train now, which only helps us get it into production sooner to be able to get it on military bases, Coast Guard bases, um, Native Indian corporations, et cetera, where they can all take them now. Uh, the future is now. The future is now. I, I hope anyway. Richard McPherson, micronucleartech.com is their website. You can go check it out. Um, I think Alaska would be the perfect commercial test bed for this kind of thing, strictly based on, again, on geography, transmission requirements and everything else. Richard, definitely keep me in the loop here. Let me know if anything comes out. We'll, we'll have you back on the program. Hold the line. Thank, Hold. Thank you for what you do. I appreciate it. Hold the line for just one second. Folks, we're out of time for today. Tomorrow is Firearms Friday. That's right. We're going to talk about the Second Amendment and more tomorrow. It's all coming up. You're going to have a great day today, I guarantee it. Be kind. Love one another. Live well. The Michael Duke Show. So this is kind of the show after the show, Richard. I want to give you anything that we didn't hit, any points that we didn't make, uh, anything that I missed, uh, or any final thoughts that you may have. I wanted to give you uh, give you the wrap up. I'd like to bring up fusion for a moment. Sure. There's a lot of misinformation about fusion, and there's a bunch of money being put in fusion, which is being squandered. Fusion is a material science problem. And we need fission reactors to be able to generate the wealth in this country to do more research in material science. Um, during the Reagan administration, when we had space wars or spa wars, they needed a, t a material that would withstand 4,000 degrees continuously. We came up with that. That was 30 years ago. We haven't come up with a material that can withstand over 4,000 degrees since then. It's a material science problem. It's not just a material science pro problem for nuclear energy, but it's everything we do. Everything that Americans, not just Americans, but the world. I'll leave you with this closing statement. One of the things that I loved about finding this molten salt nuclear battery, there are no more excuses in the world for people to go hungry or have, have to drink contaminated water and die because the molten salt nuclear battery can be used in agriculture, can be used in moving water, in agriculture, even in Alaska, to power environmentally controlled greenhouses using robotics and artificial intelligence. And you can grow all the food that you would ever need in Alaska and not have to import so much. Same way in a place like Hawaii. Hawaii imports 85% of its food, doesn't need to. Uh, on any of the islands there, there's enough room to put a large greenhouse. Um, using robotics and AI powered by the molten salt nuclear battery for combined heat and power. I I mean, I like I said, the future is now. I'd love to see it. Uh, and of course, the applications for this are pretty limitless. Um, and I hope, I hope you're right. I hope we see this in our lifetimes. I hope we see this come back because uh, this would solve a lot of those problems. Absolutely a yes, lot sir. of those problems. Richard McPherson, Micronuclear, thank you so much for coming on board. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You have a great day. Thank you so much. Okay, okay. folks, Bye -bye. Uh, that about wraps it up for me today. That was an interesting discussion. Look forward to having more of those here 
in the future. Again, Firearms Friday tomorrow. Until then, be kind, love one another, live well. We'll be back. Have a great day. shed our terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show